Well, this morning we're going to pick back up in the book of Acts. And I'm going to start us right where we left off last week. We're, we're continuing in this series, walking through Acts chapters 9 to 14. And I want to reread the verses that were from our sermon last week, just to set the context, because we're in Acts chapter 12 this morning, week number 13. The title of the message is Persecution, Prayer, Power, and Pride. We're going to talk about all four of those things this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 12 with me or look at the screen here as I read verses 1 to 6. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now, we, we come into this story here in Acts chapter 12, and we have, we, we kind of looked at a little bit last week, is the Christians facing intense persecutions, kind of ramping up under Herod, Right? But despite the inevitability of what is about to become another tragic outcome, James, the brother of John, the Apostle James, had been killed by Herod, and then Peter was arrested, and and it seems obvious there's extra guards in place. Peter is chained, not just to to one soldier, but to two. There's no escape for him. The clock's counting down. It's less than a day until his life will end as his friend James' life has just ended. And the Christians see all this going on. They're feeling all this persecution happening, and they... They decide we're going to do something. But what they decide to do, this something that they do, is not what most of us think about doing first, not what our natural inclination is. Again, verse 5 tells us what they, they did. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And we, and we, can, we can brush past that so quickly sometimes. As I was studying and I was, was writing this week for this message, I I found that phrase right there, that earnest prayer was being made for him to to be such a convicting description of their prayer. Doing a little research, digging into this, I, I was noticing the Greek word that's translated earnest here means fervent, eager, constant, continuing. And that's a that's a powerful way of describing prayer, right? And if we're honest, if we hear that and we think about our own prayer lives, that's a pretty convicting description of prayer compared to how we pray sometimes. See, we talked about this a little bit last Sunday night in our, in our men's ministry. We had a wonderful time of, of conversation around the Word of God. And we, we were thinking about how the prayer life of someone like Elijah can teach us so much, really can, can, can be kind of convicting at times, but also very in, encouraging how Elijah prayed and the result of the prayers that he prayed should, should motivate us to be people who pray. In fact, the, the book of James, written by the brother of, of Jesus, he calls us in chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, to be people of prayer. And then he uses Elijah as a motivator to apply what he just told people to do. In verses 17 and 18, James writes, Now Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. 
Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, if we're just honest, it, it's pretty clear. Most of us are not praying and having effects like that, right? <laughs> With all this rain that we've been having lately, I, I, I've offered a, a few prayers. Lord, you know, hold back the rain. I'm not praying for no rain for three years and six months, but I'm just asking for one day. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll be texting, you know, read the other day on, uh, what was it, Monday. It says, man, I just, I really hope it doesn't rain this morning. We got some things we need to do. So, I, so I'm praying, Lord, this rain, it's in the forecast. It's supposed to be coming, but hold back that rain. And, and in that case, God answered that prayer, right? We had no rain on, on Monday morning, waited until Monday night. But I mean, I've prayed that prayer a lot and there's been a lot of rain that's still come down, right? No one really prays like Elijah prayed in this regard. Lord, do not send the rain. And for three years, six months, no rain. That's pretty incredible. And so we can be tempted to look at that and go, well, I mean, that's, that's not how God and I work with, with our prayer life. So maybe since Elijah could pray that way, then something special about Elijah. But the whole point of what James is telling us in that text is, no, Elijah was not out of our league. Elijah wasn't the guy who God loved so much more that he was so much more inclined to answer prayers of. What, what James is telling us is Elijah was a, he says, a man with a nature like ours. He's the same as you and me. And yet when he prayed, he saw God's power work in an incredible way. And James' whole point is so you too should pray so that you can see God's work in an incredible way just like Elijah did. It's supposed to be a motivator to us, an encouragement to us. Right, see, the biblical view of prayer is that prayer should be the place that God's people regularly, immediately, most passionately run to when we need something, not the last resort that we turn to, which is, if we're honest, how many of us treat prayer. Not the first, it's, it's the last. Hear me, prayer is, is not a pointless religious endeavor. That's, that's what the enemy of your soul, the enemy of my soul, wants us to believe. That's the temptation that you and I, we have to fight against because the reality is we, all of us have had this experience where we have prayed for something and not seen the results that we wanted when we want them. And we face discouragement and we face this temptation to think, you know what, prayer really doesn't work. It doesn't really matter. You, you felt that? I've, I've felt that. But the text in James and the example that we see in Acts 12 here is supposed to be an encouragement to us to become people who practice persistently praying and trusting that the God that we pray to does have incredible, unrestrained, unhindered power over all things. So let's see how the power of God is at work in this story of Acts chapter 12 today. Look at verses 6 to 19 with me. Now, when Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. Now, if we stop here for a second and we think about this story, I want you to see this is a really funny story, isn't it? There, there is actually humor intended here by Luke for us 
to pick up on. So, so let, me, let, me, let, me, let me tell you the story again, and let's illustrate the humor just a little bit. Here's what's happened. An angel of the Lord, and we're talking about a real angelic being, not a human messenger. A real angelic being just shows up right in this cell where Peter is. There's a bright light shining there and everything. Right? There's, no, there's no feeling like, oh, you know, is this just some, some guy who kind of managed to sneak in? Nope. Bright light, angel in the cell right there. And what's Peter doing? Sleeping right through it. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm maybe, you know, maybe he's even snoring a little bit. It's conjecture. Text doesn't say anything about snoring. But he's apparently sleeping soundly enough that an angelic being and a bright light is not enough to wake him up. Right? So the angel has to strike Peter on the side to wake him up, which is the same thing Malia does to me when I'm supposedly snoring. I don't know if I really do snore or not. It could just be her time of taking out a little pent-up aggression, you know? Because I just wake up some morning, and she's like, how'd you sleep? I'm like, I'm a little sore. She's like, yeah, um, you were snoring, and I was stopping that. And I'm like, really? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. And a little side note, too, that never happened when we first got married. <laughs> Didn't. Yesterday was our, our anniversary, and so I'm thinking back, you know, reflecting on our years of marriage. And I'm remembering those, that first year of marriage, maybe that, that sweet honeymoon period. I remember how long it lasted because I know the day it ended. You know how I know the day it ended? See, we were first married. My lovely wife would wake me up so nice, you know, gentle words, a nice caress on the cheek, maybe a kiss. Sometimes she brought coffee, breakfast in, you know, opened the curtains, sometimes turned on a little music. It was so, so nice. And the day that all ended was one morning the alarm goes off and she reaches over, puts her hand on my face. No gentle caress that time. She starts pushing my head into the pillow and Isaiah, wake up, just slamming my head down. So, so that's the day the honeymoon phase ended when I nearly suffocated. My head being pushed to the pillow. And now it's just gone on to being struck in the side, you know, with supposed snoring. Happy anniversary again, honey. I love you. <laughs> love you so much. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so back to Acts 12. Let's get on safe ground here. Peter is woken up by being hit by an angel, right? And apparently he's still a little groggy as he's waking up because angel has to give him instructions, right? You see that in the text? He's like, Peter, put on your robe. Your arms go through the hole, Peter. You know, there you go. Now put your sandals on. Nope, wrong feet, Peter. Put them on. Tighten up the straps. Okay, get your cloak on, Peter. Why? Because it's cold outside, Peter. Now follow me. We're going outside, Peter. You know, come on. He's like prompting him in this, right? With all the things he says. It sounds to me like how I talk to the kids sometimes, right? Trying to get them dressed and out the door. This is funny in Acts chapter 12. This is a funny situation, and it's okay for us to see the humor in that. And the reason it's so funny, the reason all these funny things take place is because it's explained there in verse 9. For he, Peter, did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. So, so he's not excited. He's not, oh, oh, praise God, my deliverance is here. He's like, I, I, I mean, I'm locked up. There's no hope for escape. I'm going to die tomorrow. This is maybe a vision of the Lord delivering me. Maybe there's some symbolic meaning here. He's trying to just kind of figure this thing out. He doesn't think that's what's really taking place. I mean, Peter's had some incredible visions, right? We just read about what happened in Acts chapter 10. So, so this isn't a far stretch. We're not like, Peter, you are that dumb. You know, like he's had and seen incredible things, but this is actually real. <laughs> Verses 10 and 11 tell us, so when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, 
Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the, the Jewish people were expecting. Again, notice the, the humor here. There's Peter. Just imagine him for a moment. He's standing in the middle of a street in the middle of the night. He's been freed from prison. He's been led into the city. He's standing there. The angel disappears, so he thinks, okay, vision's probably about over, right? Maybe it's a dream, and I'm going to wake up here in a moment, but it doesn't end. So just, and you know, he's there. He's looking around like, God? Was there, was there more? <laughs> And then it dawns on him, this isn't a vision, this isn't a dream, the Lord has actually delivered me. I probably better get out of the street, the guards are probably going to come look for me soon, <laughs> right? So, so there he goes, in verses 12 to 17, he, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. But recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing out at the gate. And I love the response. The people said to her, you are out of your mind. <laughs> but she kept insisting it was so. And so they kept saying, no, no, it's his angel. But, but Peter continued knocking. So when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Again, we're still in a very, the middle of a very funny story. I mean, it's like, it's like a sitcom, really, here, right? Peter dawns on him, oh, I've been delivered. I better go tell the church who I'm sure are, are at the house praying for me. So he goes there, he, he knocks on the door, and, and he's, he's apparently saying something, trying to get attention, right? Like he's, he's knocking, nobody's coming. So it's like, this is Mark's mother's home. So he's probably calling out to Mark. Mark, come on, man, are you sleeping? Come here, come here, let me in, let me in, guys. And here comes Rhoda, hears him talking, and she's like, it's, it's Peter, the church. I know they're upstairs. They're, they're praying for him. I've, I was up there with them just a little bit ago. I got to go tell them. And she just runs off, right? And there he is still, still knocking at the door. I mean, you can envision this, right? And I love it. The, she goes and tells the church, it's Peter. He's at the door. And they're like, no, Rhoda. <laughs> Sweet Rhoda. <laughs> He's in prison. That's why we're praying, it can't be Peter. No, no, I heard Peter's voice. It can't be Peter. Maybe, maybe it's a messenger about Peter, but it can't be Peter. He's in prison. No, no, I'm sure, I'm sure it's Peter. I've heard him so many times. Okay, fine, fine. Someone go, go check and see if what Rose is saying is true. They open the door. There's Peter. And so everybody starts talking, right? Everybody's like, well, it's, it's Peter. They're amazed. And Peter has to quiet them. Listen, guys, shh, shh, listen. The guards are going to be coming soon. Here's what's happened. I'm sure as he's telling the story, Peter's probably laughing a little bit. Yeah, guys, I couldn't believe it either. There I was, standing in the street like an idiot, you know, like, God. And he delivered me. I didn't even recognize it, right? He tells them the story. He says, listen, go tell James, James, the brother of Jesus, not James, the, the apostle who just died. Go tell James, the brother of Jesus, and all the brothers with him, what has happened. I need to get out of here before the guards come. And he goes off to another place to hide. Now we're going to come back in a moment. We're going to focus on, on this response of the church, and we're going to draw some lessons for us in a moment. But I want to finish the narrative here in Acts 12 before we get there. So look at verses 18 to 24. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Well, that makes sense, right? The guy just disappears with an angelic deliverance. There's going to be some talk. So Herod, after searching for him and did not find him, examined the sentries and ordered they should be put to death. Then he, that's Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. 
And on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And then the people shouted, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Now, I want us to get here to the end of Acts chapter 12 this morning, because I want us to see Herod's story kind of wrap up here. He starts out, Luke introduces us to Herod. This Remember, Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the king, who was the one in charge when Jesus was born. And, and this Herod, Agrippa here, begins the chapter in a position of great power, right? And he's using that power to persecute the church. He has the apostle James killed. He arrests Peter. He's going to have him killed as well. The church then turns to prayer and asks the God of all power to overcome Herod, intervene and save Peter, and God does in this incredible, miraculous way. And then the response to the power of God, the deliverance of Peter, is that for Herod, he sinks deeper into pride. And he begins, according to this text, to receive worship from those who are there to stoke up his ego to get something from him. They're making much of his power, much of how wonderful he is, much of how great a speaker he is, how wonderful he looks. And Herod, instead of humbling himself, he's just been blown this this defeat by God, delivering Peter, whom he intended to kill, right? But instead of humbling himself before the power and glory of the one true God, Herod sets himself up as an idol, receives worship from the people, and God destroys him for it. The man who, at the start of the chapter, ordered the death of God's messengers, the apostles, James and Peter, at this end of the chapter now, is struck dead by an angelic messenger from God. So so what does it have to do with us? What is is Acts chapter 12 showing us, teaching us? How is it challenging us today? Well, I've, I've been struck by three things from this text that I want us to focus on this morning, and then a key idea that I want you and I to really grasp hold of today. The first thing is this, we must learn to pray persistently. We must learn to pray persistently. And I I use that term persistently, it's what comes to mind very quickly when I think about prayer and something like this, because it's the word that we chose to put into our core values as we try to think about who as a church do we want to see us become in Nelsonville. Like, 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 what are we striving for? What do we want to describe of? Even though we're not all there all the time, even though we fail to be persistent in prayer a lot of our life, if we're honest, that's who we want to be, is we want to be people who pray persistently. So let this sink in from Acts chapter 12, what we're talking about today. The church in Acts chapter 12, when this devastating situation is there, it looks like you know, James has been killed, Peter's about to be killed, When they need to do something, they don't form a political action committee and lobby for Peter's release. They don't try to storm the jail and deliver Peter all on their own. They don't subscribe to the National Sword Association and put a bunch of bravado on their social media like that could do any good. The people of God gathered and prayed earnestly, the text says. Right? Fervently, eagerly, continually, even in that night when all seemed darkest and most hopeless, Peter's going to die that day. We're hours away from his death. They're still praying. They're still persisting. They looked to the God of all power, not to their own strength, not to their own ability. 
That needs to be our response to the struggles that we face in this life, to the challenges that we face in this life too. Look, we need to rely a lot less on our power and a lot more on the God of all power. We need to pray more for God to demonstrate his might rather than us trying to do it in our strength. We really do need to learn patience and persistence in prayer because God's timing, if you've walked with God for any length of of your life, you know God's timing is usually not your timing. I'm confident that here in this text, the people were praying, not just the night before Peter was supposed to be killed, but, but since Peter was arrested, right? The church would have gathered that day and begun praying for Peter, but they don't see the deliverance. The miracle doesn't happen until the very end of the story. There's days there where they're praying, and it's easy to think, well, God hasn't delivered him yet. God hasn't delivered him yet. It's been another day, another day. Tomorrow's the day he dies. You know what? God's just not going to deliver him, guys. Let's just make our peace with it and move on. They don't do that. They persist in prayer to the very night before Peter's supposed to die. They're still praying for God to deliver him. So you and I should persist in praying no matter how long it takes to see our prayers answered. God's answer to the first prayer they prayed, maybe to the first 100 prayers they prayed, sometimes for us it's the first 1,000 prayers that we pray for something, might be we're asking him to see his power of deliverance, to see his power of healing, to see his supernatural provision in a situation, to see him change someone's heart, bring someone to salvation. His response the first 1,000 times we ask for that may be not yet, but we are still to pray. We are to persistently pray for those things because God alone sees the full picture. He alone knows the whole work that he is unfolding. He sees how everything is interconnected and what may seem like too long to us is really just right in God's perfect timing. I mean, if you really love someone who you know is not walking with the Lord and you pray, Lord, save them, and then you give up after one prayer or 10 prayers or 100 prayers, you don't understand how God works. Because sometimes it's after thousands of prayers being prayed, years of persisting in those prayers, that then is the right moment when God actually does the thing you've asked him to do. I think about my my aunt. I'm hoping to be able to go see them and my grandma in uh, July, be able to visit them for a little bit. And uh, my aunt is such a reminder to me whenever I get discouraged of being persistent in prayer, because for years as a kid, my aunt had been raised in church, and I I knew she knew the things of the Lord, but she was not following the Lord with her lifestyle. And the the longer time went on, the more farther away she seemed to get, right? The more rebellious, the more, yes, yes, I'm a Christian, but but I I don't love Jesus, I don't follow Jesus, I'm not in church. It just seemed so... So much so that the farther we went, the older she got, the, the, the more away from the Lord she was. And I'm praying, Lord, save my aunt for years and years and years. I remember being a kid. Some of my earliest memories of childhood are at this tiny church that we were a part of, Gospel Lighthouse. And I would raise my hand as you know, maybe Julia's age or something along those lines, and I would ask for people to pray for my aunt so she could be saved. And it took 12 or 13 years for that prayer to be answered. But God answered it. Saved my aunt. Turned her life upside down. 
She loves the Lord. She's, she's committed to her church. She's gotten involved in serving. She's growing. I gave her a Bible. She's just devouring reading that Bible because God worked. He answered prayers. But it was, I mean, I prayed that thousands of times. Lord, save her. And it would be easy to think, Lord, you haven't done it yet. So, I, you know, maybe this is pointless. It's not. It's not. Persist in prayer. Keep praying earnestly. Don't grow weary. Don't believe the lie that God doesn't hear you or care about you or have the power to do what you are asking. He is working. He is good. His plan is in the end, you're going to see. In the end, his plan will be understood as the perfect plan. His timing will be just right. So we must pray persistently. You, you actually get to pray persistently. It's a gift. It's a gift to learn to be persistent in prayer. Second thing I want us to see from this today is that we must pray with faith and look expectantly for God's work. We already talked about how funny the story is, the narrative is to us, because the people of God who are praying for Peter to be delivered turn out to be really shocked when God answers their prayers and delivers Peter, right? They can't believe it. No, Peter can't be at the door. I mean, we're praying for Peter to be miraculously delivered and be brought to us, but but no, he can't be because they don't really have faith that's going to happen. They've given up this belief that Peter is really going to be delivered, right? Even as they're praying for it. That's funny to us, but it's also really relatable, isn't it? And pretty convicting if we think about it. How many times have you and I prayed for something but not really expected God's going to answer that prayer? I mean, perhaps it's just because it's been a while and we've not seen God do the thing we've been asking him to do. So we shift our expectations. This can happen subtly in our hearts and we begin to just offer up that prayer as something of a, of a ritual, something to, to do. We know we're supposed to pray for it, so we, so we ask God for it, but we really don't expect him to answer that prayer. We just want to be able to say, yeah, oh, I'm still praying for that, but you don't really believe God is going to answer that prayer. We, we do this with, with medical issues a lot. Someone gets a diagnosis, someone gets sick, and we pray immediately. Man, we're earnest in our prayers up front. God, bring healing. We believe you can. We want to, to see that. And then, you know, a few weeks go by. A few months go by. Maybe a few years go by, and we're thinking, okay, I mean, I, you know, maybe God doesn't want to heal them. And, and I mean, well, we should pray for healing still. The Bible's clear. So, so, Lord, heal them, heal them. But we don't believe that person really is going to be healed anymore. Right? Well, you do this with other struggles too. Struggling against depression, anxiety, some really deep hurts that you may have in your life. You prayed earnestly at first, God, I want you to heal this. I want you to fix this. I want you to do something here. But over time, when we don't see God do what we want, when we want it, we begin to think, I don't really expect God's going to work in this situation. But I want us to notice this text because unlike what the, the false teachers of the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement will do, is, is they're going to blame you for your lack of results. But that's not what the Bible does. Right? You listen to some of these, these fake healers that have the TV programs, do the big rallies, right? And they say, well, what's the problem? You didn't get healed? Well, the problem is it's, it's you. You didn't really have enough faith. You weren't really expecting healing, so God didn't give it to you. So you need to do something to show you have some faith, Conveniently, if you give me money, that'll prove to God you have faith, right? I mean, this is what they do. I'm not making that up. That's what they do. Activate God the genie, they say, by giving faith in a more crass way. They don't use that language, obviously. 
But in Acts 12, we see something happen here. The believers are praying without proper faith, without proper expectation that God's going to actually answer the prayer. And what does God do? Answers the prayer. Why? Because God's sovereign. He is not a genie in a bottle. He doesn't need to be activated by our prayers. It's not like our prayers are charging up the battery of faith, right? And like, okay, he's just building, building, building. And then God's like, yes, got enough power. Now I can go do answer to prayer. That's not how this works. He's not just getting worn down. All right, you know what? They've prayed this thing thousands of times. Man, I gotta, let's check it off the to-do list. Guys, let's do the miracle. That's not how it works. God sovereignly, powerfully moves when he knows the timing is right. So we get to learn from their faith failure. <laughs> we get to be motivated to become persistent and remain expectant because we see God do something even when the people weren't expecting it. We get to see that God's power is not limited. His timing, it's not ours. So we get to strive to maintain faith no matter how long we have to pray for something, no matter how many times we have to pray for something, we should maintain an expectance and, and a, a belief, a faith that God can still answer this prayer. God can still overcome this cancer. God can still deliver this person. The third thing I want us to pull from the text this morning is this. Pride leads to judgment and destruction. Pride leads to judgment and destruction. Let me just tell you, as we're talking about prayer this morning, primarily, pride will prevent you from having a persistent prayer life. I guarantee it. You cannot stay, let alone grow, in a posture of pride and develop a persistent, faith-filled prayer life. They're two opposite directions. You cannot go down the route of pride and be a praying person. And if you're not a praying person, the challenge to you to consider today is, are you a prideful person? Because if you are, that's why you don't have a deep prayer life. Pride will kill prayer in your life. And pride leads to judgment and destruction because it seeks to take glory from God and place it upon us where glory does not belong. When Herod did this in Acts chapter 12, right, his pride led to him accepting the praise of the people who were saying, it's the voice of a God, it's the voice of a God. He's not even a mere man. He's so wonderful, so glorious. And he takes that flattery and accepts all of it, and God strikes him dead in the text. That's the price of pride. It leads to death. So you and I, Christians, you and I have to fight against self-reliance, self-aggrandizement, self-promotion. You have to fight against pride because the price of pride is very steep. If we are so proud, if we have pride that thinks we can do this, we've got the power to accomplish it, whatever it may be in your life, if you are proud enough to think you can do it, then you will not persistently and faithfully pray to God for it. You won't place your faith in him if you think you have enough strength in yourself. You won't expect him to do mighty things if you think you can get the outcome you want on your own. Pride is destructive, and in the end, it will result in judgment. And listen, this is timely for us to hear today because, Christian, it should be what you're thinking about in this pride month that our culture is pushing on us. You should know beyond a shadow of a doubt as the culture is celebrating pride, where pride leads. Pride leads to judgment and destruction. So you and I, we have to guard, we have to reject this culture of 
pride, this culture of promoting and celebrating sin and rebellion and destructive lifestyles, and we have to realize where those things lead. And you and I should pray in the month of the pride month, the month of June, you and I should be praying for God to destroy the pride of people that they have in themselves, to save people from the sins that are being celebrated in our culture. And you and I need to watch our own hearts for pride because I guarantee you it will prevent you from praying and expecting God to work in your life. So these are the three points I want you to see this morning. And here's this key idea that ties us into the gospel this morning. Jesus alone has ultimate power. Jesus alone has ultimate power. And to trust and follow him leads to salvation. To try and oppose him leads to destruction. I want you to just see Jesus. I want you to just look at Jesus now as we turn to preparing our hearts for response. Herod was destroyed because of his sinful opposition to Jesus for pridefully trying to take glory unto himself instead of humbly bowing and saying, I am no God, Jesus is God. He wanted to be Lord instead of saying, Jesus is Lord. And Herod's temporary victory, what looked like success as he killed the apostle James and how bleak it looked as he was about to kill the apostle, Peter only went to show in the end that God had the greater power than Herod ever did, right? I mean, hear me clearly. The apostle James only died because God was ready to take him home. Because God wanted him to have the gain of going to his heavenly reward in that moment. So he let Herod kill James. But Peter's work wasn't done. God's plan for Peter wasn't finished. So God steps in and says, oh, you've got all these efforts. You've got the elite Roman soldiers. You've got him chained up to two guys. He's in a secure jail, secure facility. You've got the best chains you can get. Hey, that's nothing compared to my power. I'll bring Peter out like that. And that's what he does. And if none of those things have power to stop God, then hear me this morning, neither does cancer, neither does depression, anxiety, neither does the government of the United States, neither does the cultural powers that are promoting sin all around us. None of that has power compared to God. Jesus alone has ultimate power. And the ultimate display of his power is seen as Jesus dies on the cross. It's not weakness. It's not the weakness you think it is when you look at first glance. There he is, bloody and bruised, his life ending. You think he's, he's not powerful. He doesn't have strength. No, that was the power of God on display because in his death, he was taking all our sin, all the disease, all the destruction upon himself and conquering it. He didn't stay dead. His power is seen on the cross and in the empty grave where he gets up. He says the debt is fully paid and yeah, I'm still here. The price is is covered, and I'm alive. The debt is gone. He conquers all of it because his power is ultimate. And so the the gospel invitation for us, the, the gospel response for us is to receive him, to trust him and have this full, total salvation given to us as a gift, a gracious gift from God that changes everything in our life. No matter how sinful we are, no matter how many times we've failed, no matter how little faith we've had in him up to this point, when we turn to him, when we believe in him, when we trust in him, what he gives us by his grace is a powerful and full salvation. And hear me, if you want to continue living your life in pride and self-reliance and opposition to Jesus, be assured today destruction is coming for you. He will bring judgment. 
And no one will escape his judgment on that final day. No one will demonstrate any power over Jesus on that final day. Jesus alone has ultimate power. To trust and follow him leads to salvation. To try and oppose him leads to destruction. So, hearing this today, seeing Jesus in this way today, if we are his people, we should be encouraged and we should be motivated to press forward in prayer, to become persistent, to seek to be that kind of person today who have faith in him, who has expectations that he will work when we pray, who will humbly rely upon his power, not our own. And today we have this opportunity to begin to, to move our hearts, to take a step of applying the, 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 we want that, so let's apply ourselves towards seeking that and get past our pride, the pride that flares up even in this moment, in this room. There's pride in some hearts that are saying, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to respond in some big way. I'm good. Your pride flares up to say, I don't, you don't need to humble yourself before God today. You do. And you have an opportunity this morning to practice humbly coming before God, releasing your control, releasing your plans, releasing your self-reliance, and turning everything over to Jesus. We get this opportunity to come and pray to our God. It's this amazing gift, an amazing gift. Morgan and Tyler, if you guys will come, they're going to lead <clears throat> in some final moments of worship this morning. And the altars are going to be open, and, and there's opportunity, like I said, to overcome the pride that flares up in our own hearts and combat the, com the complacency of comfort that would prevent some of us from trying to move in response to God today. And I want to do this by reading to you that text that I referenced at the start of the sermon from James. Hear these words this morning. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Here's how we are encouraged in the word of God to prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, that means pastors of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's an invitation here from God himself to come to prayer today. And if you want prayer this morning, I'm going to be right here at the front. I would love nothing more than to pray with you. Maybe it's sickness. And we'll anoint you with oil and we'll pray the prayer of faith. Maybe it's the first time we're praying for this. Maybe it's the hundredth time, the thousandth time we're praying for healing. But we'll pray with faith today that our God can heal. Our God does heal. And we're going to ask him to do it. And we're going to expect him to do it. And if his response today is not yet, then next week, man, we'll pray again. We'll persist in praying together. And maybe it's something else in your life a different need, a different situation. Hey, Jesus has all authority, all power over all things, so bring it to him today. I'd love nothing more than to pray with you. I'd love nothing more than to see you persist in prayer today, to trust him, to ask, expecting him to do great things. May we not waste these moments, but may we move towards him in faith. 
may we really pray in this place today that he would change us and grow us and ready us for the unseen that lies ahead. May we begin to see the power of God at work here like we have never seen before. It's what I've been praying, and that's what I'm going to pray right now, God would do. And then they're going to sing, and we're not going to put the lyrics on the screen today. If you know the words of the song, you're welcome to sing it with them. That's great, but we're going to leave that verse right there. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And Christian, this morning, maybe you feel like, well... It's not me. I'm not really all that righteous. You don't know my struggles. You are made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, that's you. Your prayers have great power as they are working. Pray today. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the clarity of the scriptures in our language, in ways we can understand. Thank you so much for this text in Acts chapter 12, Lord, that shows us you are the God whose power cannot be hindered. You are the God who can meet needs. You are the God who can bring deliverance. And so today in this place right here, right now, Lord, I pray that pride would be destroyed in our hearts, that we would humble ourselves, that we would respond to you, that we would pray, we would lay down our control, lay down our sense of self-reliance. We would give it all to you, Jesus, that we would see you do incredible and great things. May we pray today with faith. May we pray today with expectation, Lord, that you will hear us and you will work. It's in your name I pray as we now go into this time of prayer. May you draw close to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond this morning. The altars are open Move, pray, respond. Don't waste this time.